We'll read together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Father, we thank you that you are our strength, that you give us your word to bring us to completion. Lord, you promise in your word that when you start a work, Lord, you will finish it. We thank you for the work you've started in our lives, and we trust, Lord, that you will bring us to completion, to maturity, and and that when we stand before you, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, you are gracious to us. We pray that as we hear your word this morning, that we would be encouraged by the gospel by this mystery that you have made known in these last days. We thank you, Lord, for the ministers throughout the ages who have preached your word faithfully, have passed down the gospel, and yet now we stand here as those who are given the same charge to share the truth. Pray your Holy Spirit would give me clarity and wisdom. Pray that we all would have ears to hear your word, that the soil of our souls would be tilled and ready for the seed. And Lord, that you would bring forth a harvest in our hearts, that we would bear fruit to your glory. Be with the kids, Lord. I pray you would help them to hear your words and to listen. Pray your Holy Spirit would rest upon us. Lord, you are faithful and we trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back to Colossians. It's It reminds me of how, um, as we're reading this section, this is a section that I believe every pastor, or really any believer has a part in this. Because the word here, at the end of chapter 20, verse 23, we saw last week, the word that Paul says, Paul, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What, what did he say? If you, let's just read verse 23 
If indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This word translated minister is the exact same word that's used in Timothy to describe um, a deacon. It is the word that we get deacon from. It's a word that can be translated minister or servant. So the idea of a minister is not just someone who preaches the word. It is in, built into this Greek word is the idea that it is always a servant leadership. Whatever you're doing, it is servant-led. So as believers, when Paul says that he is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is saying that he is a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in reality, all of us should be ministers in that sense. I'm not saying pastors. I'm not saying that we are all called to that role. But in the role of a servant of the gospel, we all have that ministry. But most specifically this morning, we are seeing the ministry of Paul. And so the the title of today's message is Minister of the Gospel. And we'll have it in four points. Starting in verse 24, it'll be Paul's ministerial mindset. And his second point will be Paul's ministerial mandate. That's 25 through 27. Thirdly, we'll have Paul's ministerial intent in verse 28. And fourthly, Paul's ministerial drive in verse 29. So as we start in verse 24, we need to come in realizing that Paul is about to tell them what it is what attitude, what mindset he has in ministry. So when we read, begin to read, he says, Now I rejoice. Now that sounds great. We all want to rejoice. So he has a, an attitude of rejoicing. But, but in what circumstances? It says, In my sufferings. Now, we all want to rejoice, but we don't want to rejoice in our sufferings. It's easy when we're going through trials and tribulation and persecution to get upset and, and angry and, and sad, but Paul is saying that when in the midst of his sufferings, and he's being more specific, he's, he's addressing specifically persecution that he's going through. But he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Why in the world would Paul rejoice in his sufferings? He says, for your sake. He is looking at the vineyard of God's creation. All these branches that have been brought in and been attached to the vine. And he's saying, this, you are the reason that I can rejoice in suffering. No matter what situation I am. In this current state of being in prison, I can rejoice. Because that 
gives me joy. Because I am willing to suffer because I know that God is doing a work. That God is bringing forth fruit. He goes on, he says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of the body. So in his physical body, what he's saying is, my fleshly effort, the suffering that I am receiving because I am serving the gospel of Jesus, because of that, I'm doing my half. That there, there's, a, there's a part of everybody, every single person is doing their part in suffering for the gospel. Because we get to a very, very, probably one of the most controversial verses right here at the end of verse 24. Because he says, which is the church, so he's saying on behalf of his body, which, which is the church of Christ Jesus, he's making it clear. He says, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if you read this, with no context, what would you possibly conclude? What? You mean to tell me that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't sufficient for our salvation? I mean, that's an easy... If you, if you just take this out of context and you just throw it up on a wall and ask people, well, what do you think this means? How many are going to come out and say, oh yeah, that's, that's what that means. But, and this honestly is the basis for the Catholic belief in a need to suffer and purposely put yourself in a position of suffering. But that is not what Paul is saying. If that's what Paul is saying, why in the world in chapter 2, verse 18, does he say, listen, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Why would he say that in this very same book? Colossians is a, a, a proclamation against self-abasement. And in, and in verse 23, he says, he adds to it self-abasement and severe treatment. He, he describes these two things as self-made religion. So what is Paul saying? Is Paul going, is he saying this here in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 24, and then he's going back on himself? No! Paul has never, in all of his writing, Proclaim that works will save you or that Jesus is not sufficient. That's actually the whole purpose of Colossians. It's to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. So, to conclude from this that Paul is saying that Christ's afflictions weren't sufficient is heretical, honestly. I really like what a commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, says. 
He gives a very good distinction here that I think will help us understand what Paul is saying. But before we see that distinction, it's important to see that this word translated affliction is never, ever used in the New Testament to describe the suffering of Christ on the cross. Not once. It's it's used to describe the suffering of believers in the book of Acts, but it's never used to describe the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And that's a helpful thing when we begin to discuss what Lightfoot says. He says, the sufferings and afflictions of Christ have two ways of being viewed. The first is that they have sacrificial efficacy. Now, he's talking about sufferings and afflictions, but here I would throw this under sufferings. What is sacrificial efficacy? That means that that it has value to take our debt, right? And he goes on, he says, this could not be lacking as I have already shown, and he that was prior in this book. He says, the passion of Christ was one full Perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Again, the passion of Christ was one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. There was no need. And if that's not enough, just think about it. Jesus said on the cross, what were were His words? It is almost finished. Is that what He said? It is. He didn't say it's almost or will be. He said it is finished. It was a done deal. The second category that Lightfoot uses, he says are those that have ministerial unity. He says, It is a simpler, simple matter of fact that the afflictions of every saint and martyr, martyr do supplement the afflictions of Christ. The church is built up by repeated acts of self-denial in successive individuals and successive generations. They continue the work which Christ began. They bear their part in the sufferings of Christ. I think this is very helpful. The church has always gone forward. You look at the history of the church and its growth, it always seems to grow out of the midst of affliction. That is when the church grows the most. Look at a modern day example, China. China's Christian population has exploded in the midst of persecution. Somehow in God's sovereign will, He has made it where affliction and Christians serving Him in the midst of it brings forth fruit. And I believe it's because a God who is worthy to be worshipped in the midst of affliction is God Himself. Not the fake gods of the world that are only served when they are valuable to you. 
while you're happy. God is to be served no matter the circumstances. And on top of that, Satan is fiercely opposed to the children of God. It's, it's been throughout the ages. So Paul sees he is a part of the church, right? He said that in that his suffering is a part of the church's role in, in, in fulfilling the, the afflictions, not the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ. This is not talking about making the sufferings of Christ sufficient for our salvation. That is not what Paul is saying. And there's still, even in my own mind, truly understanding this is difficult. But I know for certain that the view that this is talking about us in our suffering filling up what is lacking in God's Sacrifice for us in Christ on the cross is absolutely false. Whatever other category you fall upon cannot compare to that heresy. Jesus is all sufficient. Paul's already said it multiple times just in chapter 1, and he'll continue to say it throughout this book, and it's throughout all of his writing. Just think about this. In 2 Timothy 3.12 it says, All who desire to live godly in Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a popular phrase, but what what is Paul telling Timothy? He's saying, if you serve God, you will be persecuted. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Or look at Acts 14.22. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, in God's plan, He has always meant for His church to go through tribulation through trials, through afflictions. Romans 8, 17 and 18. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What does he say again? He says we will be heirs and children of God if indeed we suffer with Him. Let me ask you a question. How is Christ suffering today? In His church. We are the body of Christ. We are His earthly representation because He lives in us. We're suffering with Him. And if we are suffering with Him, then we are His children and His heirs. If we are unwilling to suffer affliction with Christ, then we are not heirs. That's what Paul's saying. First Thessalonians 3 and verse 2 says, 
And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Why would they need to be strengthened and encouraged? Have you thought about that? Well, if you turn there with me, look there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He goes on. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Exact same word from Colossians. What afflictions? Afflictions that are coming upon them. Sufferings at the hand of their own countrymen. Men and women being killed. Prophets. That's what he's talking about. Going on. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when you were with, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. How could Paul know this? Because God had showed him. And so, that this idea of filling up in Colossians chapter, verse 24, is the idea of filling up something that is not full yet. And so Paul is looking at, at the end of time, there is an, an affliction that will be, that has been poured out on the church throughout that will f- be filled up to its end. And he goes on, he says, And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Paul and the apostles and the disciples who were following them afterwards knew that suffering was a part of being a believer in Jesus Christ. They didn't act afraid. What? What happened? Our life was so comfortable. No, they knew, if I follow Jesus, I will suffer. And so we see in Paul's ministerial um, mindset, he expects to suffer, but he does so with rejoicing. And this should be true for all of us. Not that we want to suffer. If you want to suffer, you might have a problem. I think psychologists consider that a, a symptom of a disease. Suffering is not what we naturally want. But Jesus says that we will suffer if we serve Him. But we can do it in rejoicing because we're serving the Gospel. And as a pastor and a minister, Paul is saying... This is how he approaches ministry. 
This is how he remains strong when he's sharing the gospel with others because he knows that no matter what suffering and affliction may come, if he stays true to the Word of God, that he will see souls saved. He'll see the lost transformed. I can't think of a better mindset that I can have as a pastor here or you all can have in your daily lives when you share the gospel with those you encounter. I know how hard it is to want to strike up that conversation at the supermarket or wherever to share Christ, but it is worth it because in the suffering, God brings about salvation. It's for the sake of the people you're talking to. That's why we share the Gospel. That's why we preach the Gospel wherever we are because if we don't tell them what will happen, not that it's reliant upon us, but should we be God's appointed messenger to that person and they not hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ, they will die and go to hell. Do we care enough for the souls of the lost to suffer with Christ, but rejoice in the harvest that He brings? Secondly, we have His ministerial mandate. And we see this in verse 25 through 27. He says this, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. This idea of stewardship is a person who takes care of the house. Keeps the house in order. Back in the old days when you had enough money, you would hire a butler, right? In in England especially. And the butler's job was to make sure that all the affairs of the house were in order. So he made sure the housekeepers were doing their job, the gardeners, and, and it was their job to make sure that the home was in in running order a good working machine this is the exact this is the idea that that Paul is is talking about here when he was called he is called to be a steward of the house of god he is he is called to make sure through Christ's power in him to See that the church of God, the house of God, is running properly. That's why he is such a concern and heart for the church. Because he feels this stewardship. He's been given this stewardship. And he wants to stand before the Lord and him say, Well done, good and faithful steward. God has given him a call. And and for us as believers, whether you're in my shoes or in the shoes of a a husband or uh, a wife, you have authority over a realm. And God is calling us to be good stewards in Christ over that area. To submit and say, Lord, 
My life is yours. Help me to steward it well so that when I stand before you, you'll say, well done, good and faithful steward. So Paul's mandate comes from God. He has given him the stewardship. He says, bestowed on me for whose benefit? For, for Paul's benefit? For the minister's benefit? No, for your benefit. You want to know how to tell when a, a pastor is a wolf? Because he's eating the sheep. It's not about the sheep. He wants more and more for himself. It's all about his own benefit. That's a hireling. A shepherd will lay down their life for the sheep. They are a servant of the sheep. That's what Paul is saying here. It's not for my benefit. It's not so that, I mean, honestly, if Paul was doing this for his benefit, he would have given up when suffering came. When affliction came. But he was doing it because he knew that God had given him this stewardship so that the church would grow. So that believers would grow. And he says, why? He says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is His mandate. His mandate from God is to preach fully the Word of God. To not leave anything out. To not hold back because it's not popular. To not hold back because people don't want to hear what you have to say. Paul is going to preach the Word of God. And not to offend anyone, he may visit you in your sickness, but he's going to preach the Word. I heard once, I like to ask people why they like their pastors especially people in churches that aren't like the ones we grew up in. And I actually heard one one time, I said, what's, they said, oh, we love our pastor. He's, he's so amazing. I'm like, what's the, what's the best thing about it? Oh, I called him, I, I call him when we're sick and he'll be at the hospital in five minutes. I'm not saying that's bad. We should, as a pastor, we should be, Caring for our flock in that way. But that was the reason that they loved their pastor. Not that we shouldn't care, but... And then I asked about... The, oh, yeah, he's pretty good about preaching. The word I'm, I'm thinking... That's not what... There's nothing in the Bible that says if, if your pastor makes it to the hospital in five minutes, you're... You're a, they're a really great pastor. Actually, in the book of Acts, 
Who was it that was caring for the sick and the widows? The deacons. Not because the apostles didn't want to do that, but they didn't have time because they had so much in their bag to pray and to prepare the Word. Again, I, I don't think it's bad for a pastor to visit their people who are not feeling well. But I'm saying is, in our society, we put sick visits above the preaching of the Word and faithfulness to the Word. That should be our number one priority as pastors and ministers of the Word of God. Any minister who does not put most of their time into preparing to preach the Word, but puts it all in other aspects of the ministry, I don't believe that that ministry will be founded on Christ. Eventually it will be about people being happy and comfortable instead of conforming the church and those in it to the image of God. But Paul's mandate, again, is to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. He's not going to hold back. He's going to preach every bit of doctrine in the Word. He's going to teach the full gospel. And he goes on to explain what this gospel, what this preaching looks like in verse 26. He says, that is, this is very important, that is, which is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints. What a wonderful gift we have. The previous generations of men in the Old Testament did not have this blessing. We have a blessing to hear the Word of God taught to us. Because this idea of preaching is not just preaching, it's also teaching, which is something that all of us can do. But he goes on in verse 27. He says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. This mystery has been made known to the saints. Are these saints like just really holy people in the church? Is that what he's talking about? Just particular people in the church? You know, that have miracles done through prayer to them? No, that's not what he's... He's talking about holy ones, people set apart, his children... And what is the glory of this beautiful mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what he's preaching. Christ in you. This is not a popular message. There's a lot of people that preach 
Christ, but they don't preach Christ in me. Christ in you. Christ in us. Our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, is the monumental part of the Christian life. This is where we get the victory. When we remember every morning who we are in Christ, that's when the victory comes. If Christ is in me, would He look at that? If Christ is in me, would He say that? If Christ is in me and giving me power over sin, would He have that problem at the stoplight? If Christ is with me, would He get upset at the cash registers at Walmart because they have five employees working the whole store? I know no one's ever had that problem. There's a thousand people in the store and five employees. And only two of them are working the cash register. Or lately I've been going to Sam's, okay? Now, I should probably stop ranting, but lately I've been going to Sam's and they'll have like two people working cash and they've got all these automated ones and then you can also do it on your phone now. But to get out the door, you got to wait in line. <laughs> and you see like five or six uh, Sam's employees just walking around by the food area. It's like, what are you... Th- Do you all hate work? Anyways. But I realize that's not a good attitude on my part. I actually get, I have money to go buy food and what's, what's five minutes of inconvenience? If Christ is in me and He's the hope of glory, maybe I could share the gospel with somebody that's in line with me. They can't go anywhere and they're trying to get out of there. They're not going to walk away because they don't want to get in the back of the line, which is half the distance to the bathroom. If we look at life and our circumstances that we're in as Christ would, because He's in us, He's living in us, giving us power over sin. He's given us His Holy Spirit. But this is the gospel that Paul is preaching. He's not preaching another gospel. He's preaching the Word of God. He's not trying to make alliances with heresy. I just want as many people as I can to come to Christ. So I'll I'll water down the Word. No. He's going to preach fully the Word... Christ in us. He's proclaiming the glory of Christ in us. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. Before you had to go into the Holy of Holies and only one man did it once a year. But yet, we stand here today as believers in Jesus Christ and it says that Christ lives in us. If we don't get excited about that, we will not get excited about anything. We have the living God living in us. That's what Paul preached. That's why he expected fruit from the church in Colossae. This is why he was upset to hear that the church in Colossae was embracing lies. 
Christ in you would not believe such lies. The all-sufficient Savior does not believe that trash. I think there's a lot of attempts of late to do a lot of work ecumenically, as you know. But the latest thing has been that has bothered me is Megan was mentioning to me the other night that, or I don't know how long ago it was, but um, that there are a lot of people online now who are Mormon or LDS who are claiming to be Christians, like openly, talking like Christians, acting like Christians. And you'll, you'll go for months seeing posts by these people, and then suddenly you realize they're Mormon. It's sad because the reason that they appear Christian is because they actually have modest apparel. They actually seek to have and start modest apparel companies. Um, and they have clean... Um, shows on YouTube and stuff that aren't necessarily Mormon, but they they don't have vulgarity or uh, any trashy stuff like that. Even the TV series, if you've heard of it, The Chosen, is done in a... It's done in correlation with a LDS uh, studio... It's actually their studios that's putting it out, though it's though the director claims to be evangelical Christian. But the other day, that director, Dallas Jenkins, he posted a video on YouTube trying to clarify some things he said about LDS believers or Mormons. And he, he claimed he claimed that these men, these friends of his, he said, I'm not saying that every LDS is a Christian, but the people that I know in the LDS, my friends in the LDS are, they serve the same Jesus as me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. So I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. Maybe LDS has really changed their views about Jesus. So I went to their website and just did some searching and, and found some statements to the effect of the distinction between us and most Christian denominations is we believe that Jesus and God the Father are two distinct beings. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm sorry, I'm, I got really angry when I heard this guy say this. Because then he tried to claim that any Christian who said that an LDS believer could not be a Christian was intellectually lazy. No. He is being spiritually lazy. I'm not saying that a Mormon can't come to Christ. 
possibly even in the Mormon church, and then, but they're going to come out. Why? Because the church of the Mormon church is speaking lies. They are from the pit of hell. I know Mormons. I knew a Mormon in, in when I worked at UPS, and it took me a while to figure out that he was Mormon because he was a super nice guy. He was honest. He paid really well. Was easy. The work was hard, but he he didn't tell you he was going to show up and not show up, and better than actually some Christians. But it's all because they they work to their salvation. It's it's very legalistic. But all that to say, they they don't believe in Christ in you. They preach a different gospel, and we must not jump into that boat with them. And it really irks me that someone like Dallas Jenkins, who has a great following because of his role in The Chosen, which I've heard good reviews of Season 1. I don't know. I've heard other things about Season 2, but... Even beyond this, he you go down in and scroll the um, comments on his on his YouTube, and almost every person responding is an LDS member. Oh, thank you for being honest and being open about the fact that we're Christians too. And I'm thinking your statement, whether you realize it or not, is. Comforting people so that they will spend an eternity in hell because they do not serve the living God. They do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. If that's the Jesus, if Dallas Jenkins serves the Jesus of the LDS church, then he is not a believer. The question is, does he believe that or not? Does he truly understand what the LDS church believes? What do we believe? We need to know because they will seek to deceive you. Because if you say, well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, they'll say the same thing. And if you say, well, Jesus is the Son of God, they'll say, oh yeah. But if you say that Jesus is the only Son of God, God in the flesh, they will argue with you till they're blue in the face. You tell them that Jesus the Holy Spirit and God the Father are a triune being, they will argue with you because they know that their church does not teach that. They are a heretical group. They are a cult. And no matter how many times I stand up here, that will not change. Sorry, it's not really a part of this message, but it bothers me because it is exactly what Paul is dealing with in the book of Colossians. They do not believe that Christ is sufficient. But He is. And He's come and He lives inside of us. That is our hope. And Paul's mandate is to preach this hope through the Word of God. So his mindset is that he will suffer but he's suffering for fruit among us with joy and rejoicing. His mandate is from, the, from God, the God of heaven, and his mandate is to preach the word fully, not to hold back because it's unpopular, 
Not to hold back because he's making money from some, some source that could not like that. And in verse 28, we see Paul's ministerial intent. We proclaim Him, who? Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man. I want to take a note here. He's saying every man. He could have used everyone. He could have used um, all men. Right, a plural of man. But he's... He's wanting them to see that discipleship is one-on-one, mostly. We need to care for the individual in the church. If we are to be faithful ministers of Jesus Christ, especially pastors and leadership of a church, we need to care for the individual people. Paul did not use the plural men. He used the singular man. This reply it speaks to women as well. But he is proclaiming him and admonishing every man and teaching every man what? With all wisdom. They're doing all this for the flock of Jesus Christ. Now why would he do this? What is the reason that Paul is willing to suffer and rejoice through it? What is the reason that Paul preaches the word of Jesus Christ and Christ in us? Well, we see right here, it's about every man and every woman that God is calling to Himself. So that we, who's we? the church, we may present every man, every single one of them, not just getting numbers at a revival rally. See, God, look at all these people that I saved. Well, I hope you didn't save them. I hope the Holy Spirit saved them because if you saved them, it's not going to last. Look at all these people that came to Christ while I was preaching in that revival. I'm not saying that revivals are bad or tent meetings or whatever. What I'm saying is numbers on a page does not represent salvation. If you went on the numbers of people recorded in the country of Haiti who have come to Christ since missionaries started going there, guess how many people would have been saved? Five times the number of people that live in the country of Haiti. Five times the number of people who live in Haiti. If you just went on the numbers that had been recorded by people who said, well, we had so-and-so number of decisions... Decisions that don't lead to discipleship are worthless. 
And I'll say that again. Decisions that don't lead to discipleship are worthless. We must, we must, as a church, be about discipling believers. It is not enough to share the gospel. Not saying that that's a bad thing to do. But we must be sure that when we are done and God transforms that heart, that we are putting them in a place where they will be discipled. That we're calling them to discipleship because that's what Paul is all about. He's doing this to present every man what? Complete in Christ. This word complete is the word from which we get telephone, actually. Not phone, but tele. End of the line. This idea is the idea that we come to the, our intended end. When God saves us, He has a purpose. When God saves us, He actually has a reason. The work that God starts in us has a completion in its maturity and perfection before Him. When we see Jesus face to face, it says we will be like Him. We'll be made perfect. Paul's intent is that every believer would be complete in Christ. Not complete in Caleb's preaching. Not complete in their own works. Complete in Jesus Christ. This is why we cannot run and think, well, if I afflict myself enough, then, then that'll complete it. No. We are complete in Christ. That is the only way we will come to maturity. If we are not admonished and taught through the Word of Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we will never find completion. We'll have a lot of false starts, but we'll never find completion. I pray that this is our desire as a church, that we may present every man, woman, and child complete in Christ. Is that the intent of our ministry here. This is why evangelism is just the first step in the believer's life. This is why we need the older teaching the younger and the younger encouraging the older to go deeper. This is why we need conversation between us. The younger need to hear about what God was doing in the old days and, and how God moved. Not that He has to move exactly the same way, but and then the younger pouring out. Do, do you think God could move in this way? And how can we work together to see God's move in our community? Through lots of prayer and crying out to Him. So we saw His mindset, His mandate, and his intent. And in verse 29, we see what drives him, his ministerial drive. 
For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. You know what gives Him power? What gives Him the drive He needs to keep going? It is Jesus Christ in Him. Isn't that incredible? Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, got his same strength where we can get strength. In the power of Christ Jesus who lives in us. I don't know what could be said that would be any better than that. Whatever God has called you to in the ministry of this church, in the reaching of your neighbors or your the people you encounter every day, we have the same power in us. Christ in us. I know how difficult it is to overcome fear when sharing the gospel. But I know that if Christ is in me, it doesn't matter if that person shuts me down. Maybe they'll actually hear the truth. And they'll believe. We don't choose who gets saved. God does. He just says water, plant seeds, till up some soil. I give the increase. You may not see the fruit, but He will bring the fruit. Our call is not to save anyone. Our call is to give them that which they seek. Jesus Christ in them. The hope of glory. Father, we thank You for faithful ministers like Paul throughout the ages who were not selfish, but they were driven, Lord, by Your power with an attitude that suffering for You would bring joy and rejoicing. Because, Lord, they saw the power of Your Word. They saw the power of preaching Your Word. And they desired to see men and women complete in Christ Jesus. I pray that that would be true here at SCA. That this church would strive to see men and women complete in Christ. And I know, Lord, the only way that happens is if You are working in us, that we are not relying on our own strength. Or give us hearts that hunger and thirst to know Your will. Hunger and thirst to know Your power so that we will not be wasting our time. Father, if it is not Yours, it is a waste. Give us Your mind, Lord Jesus. Do a work in our lives. Give us courage to speak the truth. Guide us, Lord, that we would not only reach out to our neighbors and the lost in this community, but that we, as we see those come to Christ, we would have the means of which to raise up and to train, 
to disciple, Lord. Guide us, Lord, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. Be with us this week. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with those we encounter, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.